Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all their podcasts, all their live events, everything they got going on over at OsirisPod.com. I have an excellent episode for you today. One which features an interview with William J. Carl, who is a Greek scholar, screenwriter, and playwright, former professor, seminary president, and pastor, who has spoken at Oxford, Cambridge, Princeton, Cornell, Boston University, Carnegie Mellon, as well as many other schools in the U.S. and internationally. He is the author of eight nonfiction books and one novel entitled Assassin's Manuscript, which is the focus of this episode. Author Catherine Rhodes Henderson describes Assassin's Manuscript as a Dan Brown-like fast-paced thriller, super smart, with great character development, and complex, with an interesting global peace theme. You can practically see it on the screen. I could not agree with Catherine Moore. If you like Dan Brown's work, you will love William Carl's novel, and it truly feels cinematic. Assassin's Manuscript tells the story of when former CIA assassin Adam Hunter's last hit goes awry, and he attempts to leave behind his world of espionage and murder by embarking on a career in ministry. But soon, he's pulled back in to crack a code hidden in an ancient manuscript in order to foil a terrorist plot. In the meantime, Rennie Ellis, a lawyer in the small town he's moved to, gets caught up in his dilemma and falls in love with him, not realizing he killed her fiancé by accident. The heist of a famous codex from the British Museum, papal intrigue in the Vatican, Sicilian and Russian mafia involvement, and a U.S. president who knows more than she admits, all play key roles in a story that keeps the reader guessing until the end. From Rome to Jerusalem, from Egypt's Mount Sinai to Tennessee's Smoky Mountains, the characters in Assassin's Manuscript scramble for their lives, racing the clock to prevent an international disaster. In this episode, me and William discuss the vast amount of research involved in bringing Assassin's Manuscript to life, which includes interviewing multiple real-life assassins. We discuss the exotic locations brought vividly to life in the book and the diverse and unique motivations of the eclectic grouping of characters found in the novel. We explore the weighty themes present in the book, the legendary text that lies at the heart of Assassin's Manuscript, what might be in store for the character of Adam Hunter moving forward, and so much more. William is truly a fascinating mind. His book is excellent, so I have no doubt you will enjoy this interview with William J. Carl. Podcast. William, thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, I love the book and I can't wait to discuss. Thank you. Great to be with you, Michael. To kick things off, I was hoping you can speak uh, generally about your background. Your bio is so fascinating to me. You, you know, you kind of waded into many, many worlds and 
you know, uh, learning more about where you've been, it, it, it you could see a lot of you and what you've been through and what you study and what you know about in the novel. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit, um, you know, about, about your career and, you know, kind of how it formed, uh, informed Assassin's Manuscript. Sure, I'll be glad to, Michael. You know, they say that all writing is autobiographical mm -hmm. anyway, uh, but it's funny because here is a story about an ex-CIA assassin who becomes a minister in Maryville, Tennessee, which is where I live. And people go, is this autobiographical? Is it not that autobiographical? <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it has been fascinating to see myself in different parts of the book that I didn't even realize until I actually finished writing it. Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, went to University of Tulsa, which is where the James Joyce Quarterly uh, comes out of. And uh, in fact, uh, Bob Dylan just gave all these papers there. It has one of the largest collections of modern English literature in the country. Louisville Presbyterian Seminary was going to go on and be a minister, uh, which I did later, but first became a professor because I did a PhD in rhetoric and communication at the University of Pittsburgh. Ivy League schools don't have graduate programs in those areas, so the two tops programs are Pitt and Northwestern. And uh, I went to Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia to be a professor, uh, taught homiletics, which is fancy word for preaching and worship or liturgy. And I was the Greek professor. I had, had, uh, had translated half the New Testament in college and so i knew greek really well and they needed a greek professor so i became the greek professor in i taught there seven years and in 1983 became pastor of a really big church in downtown dallas was on tv to half a million people all over texas and the services then i became president of pittsburgh theological seminary uh, the oldest presbyterian seminary in the country older than princeton uh, and then finished in a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and now retired. Mm. Uh, but I loved traveling and lecturing all over the world. And I did a lot of that traveling, researching the novel while I was speaking or lecturing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I went to maybe six foreign countries to do the research. I believe uh, James Michener had a big influence on me. He mm. always did lots of research. Yeah, and it took me thirty yeah. years to write this thing. That's I was right? just going to ask. I mean, I know there was twelve revisions. It is three decades of of work here and travel yeah. and everything. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I love how much travel does inform the book. You know, the locations are so fascinating. You really go on an adventure. Let me just ask that. I was going to wait for a little bit, but uh, the Saint Catherine's Monastery—that's the world's oldest monastery. That that was really amazing to learn about. Did you kind of get that tour that Oliver gave? um uh adam in the book and 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 kind of experience in that way oh i was just telling jane i remember going there uh, uh -huh. she showed me pictures of petra mm. and i had been to petra in jordan right before i got with an egyptian guide and a bedouin driver to make my way to saint catherine's down toward the foot of mount sinai in egypt and yes this is the oldest most continuous worshiping community of any uh, saint catherine's monastery uh, goes back to the sixth century Justinian, you know, Byzantine emperor helped uh, have it built. Uh, Muhammad apparently visited there. It's very historic. People go there and they climb Mount Sinai in, at, at the, because this is at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, they climb it uh, every night at three in the morning, pilgrims wow. from all over the world to watch the sunrise. So I just thought I'm going to put Adam right there. Yeah. 
and have him climb Mount Sinai. And yeah, and of course, you know, things happened to him up on top of Mount Sinai. But there's there's a little bit of action. There's a little bit of action. There's did, a uh, lot of action there. That's right. Did the monastery have that um, rancid mildew smell you were speaking of? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was uh, really amazing. And I had a run of the place because I had a letter of introduction oh, wow. to the monks there from the patriarch of the whole Greek Orthodox Church in Istanbul. And uh, they called me Pater William, Father William, you know, wow. thought I was a Greek Orthodox priest. All that. Uh -huh. But I, most tourists only get to see the chapel and the gift shop and something they call the burning bush there, which is mm -hmm. this little fake thing. Yeah. And then uh, and then they just have to leave. But I could go everywhere. I went to the library so I could describe the, the library where I have all the old manuscripts. Wow. I could describe the Adam going there. And yeah, it was fascinating. The reason St. Catherine's is so important is it's where code, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus was originally mm -hmm. discovered uh, by Constantine von Tischendorf. I've always been fascinated by this guy, a, a real Indiana Jones yeah. character from... Uh -huh. Uh, mid mid 1800s from Germany, and he went there three different times, and finally discovered the Codex. It's the oldest version of the Bible uh, in existence. Took it to the Russians, said he was just borrowing it, and never brought it back. And there are monks there who are still mad about him. You know, the stories have been passed on by from generation to generation. And then the Bolsheviks took over, and they said we don't need this thing, and they sold it to the. Uh, British Museum in London in 1933 for a hundred thousand pounds, and it was a crowdsourcing event that uh -huh. got it. So, in the beginning of the novel, I have it stolen from the British Museum and start its trek back through Russia. So that is so that is just for people who don't know who maybe be interested in reading the book. Um, the Codex, uh, and how do you say the second word? Sinaiticus. It's so Sinai. Sinai the it oldest is, yeah. version of of the bible of the new testament or the whole the of new testament well, the bible period but, yeah okay yeah. wow because that's that, that yeah. really lies at the heart of, of the whole story so i want to ask where is it now well it's it got moved in 1998 i uh -huh. think it was 88 98 to the british library and that became a problem for me because i traveled to london to figure out how it could be stolen yeah and i talked to the gallery warders there and i said look i'm a Presbyterian minister, and I'm concerned about these manuscripts. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Wouldn't it be hard? How would somebody steal this manuscript? <laughs> well, there is a time every day when we turn off the alarm system and we turn a page, and I go, "That's when there I can is. have it stolen." <laughs> I can't believe they gave you and, that information. But, but the problem was they moved it to the British Library, mm -hmm. and now, now what am I going to do? That's much more secure and hard. It's very hard to steal something. So uh, I had to have, uh, there was a moment that sometimes they'll bring old manuscripts back mm. from the British Library to the British Museum. And mm -hmm. that becomes my that moment. When yeah. I'm have it. It's so fun how much truth is in, is in this fiction and how much kind of real history is in it. And I mean, that comes from all the research. Um, I'd like to talk more about some of that research. And, and some that is one that's truly fascinating is interviews you conducted. So you interviewed a handful of real assassins when researching this book. I mean, how and uh, what did you learn? <laughs> yeah, people are always asking me, how in the world did you meet assassins? Well, you know, I am I am something of an extrovert. I will go into a restaurant and just walk around to booths and tables and say, do you like that? Is that good? And my family says, we didn't know any. <laughs> 
you know, it's outcomes assessment. I want I don't want to just look at a menu. So I get uh, there were three Americans, one Israeli and one Russian hmm. who were the five real life hitmen that I interviewed. Yeah. I thought I need to understand my main character. Mm-hmm. This guy who was a hitman, now he's a minister. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul, whatever. So uh, one of them was a taxi driver in Louisville, Kentucky. I was on the board of Louisville Seminary and I flew in about midnight. Our meeting was downtown at the Brown Hotel. And this taxi driver was a very rough looking guy with a big beard. And I always like to talk to taxi drivers. Yeah. I learn a lot. Mm-hmm. He had a heavy New York accent, like Copa Coffee, you know, mm-hmm. kind of got New Jersey or, or New York. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, so uh, when'd you get here? Came here after Nam. And I said, oh, what'd you do in Vietnam? I was in the Phoenix Project. Oh, and I knew that was assassins because I'd done so much research on mm-hmm. assassins. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, well, you got to pick up anybody else tonight? No, you're my last pickup. I said, if I cross your palm with a hundred dollar bill, can we have a drink and you can tell me stories? <laughs> oh yeah, man, I'd love to. You know, I hated the the North Vietnamese. Yeah, and, and he, wow. you know, we called wow. him goose and everything. I mean, he was a really rough guy. So I just took notes, yeah, listening to him talk about his assassinations. Mm-hmm. And what he was like. I wanted to get inside this character. I wanted to understand why these guys can be cold as ice and yep. very calm, right? Yeah. So yeah. then uh, another one was that was an American. Mm-hmm. Another one was the son of a hitman. And I was lecturing, I'm not going to say the name of the college, but it sure. was a small college somewhere in the United States. And at the end, they in the QA said, What are you writing? We know, see, I've got eight nonfiction books that are one's a set of lectures I gave at Princeton, lots of different kinds of books, mostly theological. Mm. And uh, they said, what are you working on now? I said, a novel. And they said, what's it about? So I told them what it was about. So at the end, this young philosophy professor comes up to me and said, could we go visit somewhere? And I said, sure. Uh, He said, I want to tell you about my dad, who told me that he was a hitman for the CIA. He told me on his deathbed, Wow. And and he said, you would never have believed it because he was a regular little league dad and father next door. He was just the father next door. Uh, And he would go off on these trips. He never said where he went. He'd just go on these trips around the world. But he was going off killing people. And and he told me on his deathbed. Okay, so and he he described to me what his dad was really like, very calm person. The third American is a librarian at a seminary in this country. That's insane. That's insane. (laughs) (laughs) You just never know. You never know. He's just like my main character. He was a hit man. And we were doing an accreditation site visit when I was president of Pittsburgh Seminary for another seminary. I don't need to say the name. And we were having dinner and he was telling me what I was working on. He said, Oh, that's what I used to do. (laughs) I said, you gotta be kidding. (laughs) So he, I said, tell me stories. So he told me stories. I took notes. He was a big guy, really big. You wouldn't want to take him on. The Israeli was running a tennis tournament in Mm -hmm. Dallas. Uh, My son is a, with varsity tennis player and is a college and, and, and is a teaching tennis pro mm-hmm. in the DC area. Mm-hmm. And he was playing in a tournament. He was about 14 at the time. 
And this guy was running the tournament, handing out cans of tennis balls. So I said, uh, I could tell he had an accent. I said, where are you from? He said, Israel. Oh, I said, when you come here? I said, he told me what year. I said, I know because I'm aware that everybody has to serve in the military. Uh, what what did you serve? He said, yeah, I served. Would you? He was, I was with Mossad. Oh, what unit? The Kidan unit. Mm. K-I-D-N. I know because of the research I'd done, that's assassins. I yeah. said, oh, can you tell me some stories? Wow. And he told me a bunch of stories. He just opened right up. These guys want to talk. It's kind yeah. of like they want to get off their chest or something. I don't know. You don't want to bottle that stuff up. <laughs> I'm not, that's right. I'm not going to use their names, whatever, yep. you know. Yep. And he he told me, this is what was so chilling. He said, I had Arafat in my sights twice. Wow. And the order never came to off. take the shot. Yeah. That's wild. That's I, it's, The Russian, uh -huh. the Russian is a Presbyterian minister in the Ural Mountains that I met in his church, which is in a bomb shelter three stories below ground. And turns out he was a mafia chief and a murderer. Wow. And now he's a minister in the Ural Mountains. <laughs> that was like all, my... It all makes sense so how, you, I... how you how you nailed Adam so so well and, and kind of rounded out things. These other assassins in the book as well that are fascinating too, which I'm sure they informed these interviews informed that as well. Yep. Well, if you think of the movie Carlos the Jackal that Bruce mm -hmm. Willis was in, yep. and toward the end. He's befriended this guy to get close to be able to try to shoot somebody, vice president or somebody. Yeah. And the guy is jabbering away over next to him. And he's at a bar eating Chinese food, watching the TV. And the guy's just driving him crazy. So he picks up his silencer, goes thump, thump, <laughs> and puts it back down and goes back to eating back his to Chinese food. That's cold. a real assassin. Yeah. That's a real assassin. Doesn't even think so about that it. there's. There's, there's no guilt. And yeah. Adam doesn't have any guilt mm -hmm. until he kills his own wife by accident, Absolutely. which is really near the beginning of the, I'm not giving that much away. because No, it's not at all. That, that, that's kind it, of like. That's things well, in motion. That one, yeah, that, that propels the, the whole thing. Um, is that School of Assassins in that you speak of in Georgia a real thing? What did you just ask? School, is that School of Assassins in Georgia, the Pentagon? Oh, yeah, yeah, as far as, yeah. Yeah, yeah, as far as I know, yeah. I, hadn't, yeah. I hadn't heard of that. So uh, you mentioned uh, uh, in passing there that your son is a tennis pro in D.C. I know you got right. onto the White House tennis court and even into the Oval Office, which helped kind of set the scenes with the with the president. Is that how that happened? Well, the uh, ten White House tennis court was Sichon Sieve, who was a Cambodian refugee whose first job was at the White House and got me on the White House tennis court. Uh, and <laughs> and it, it would talk about an American story. Uh -huh. uh, I asked him how long he'd been playing tennis. He said, not very long. This is only court I've ever played on. <laughs> the Cambodian refugee gets me on the White House tennis court. So I knew how to describe that. And it's in the novel, yeah. you know, and all that. The Oval Office is our older son, the one who's now the teaching tennis pro, did mm. work for George W. Bush in the White House. Mm. And uh, and so uh, at the goodbye, you know, his last day, uh, 
the, the President Bush had the family come in and do yeah. photo ops in front of the, oh, the cool. famous desk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's how I got in the Oval Office. Yeah. Yes. So I want to get into the meat of the characters and and and, and some more uh, about the book. But I do want to ask you real quick before we do that. There was an author uh, who pushed and inspired you to write this book. And I'd love to hear you talk about how a uh, pretty notable actor kind of uh, twisted your arm a little bit to get this done. And his name was Alex Haley, very well known to lots of people. I, it's interesting. I talk to younger people these days and they go, Alex Haley, who's, you know, it's like uh, I have to explain roots and all that. But um, I had him speak at a thing called Town Hall Forum at our church in Dallas. And he was sitting in my office one day and there as he was going to go speak. And he said, have you written anything? And I said, yeah, several nonfiction books. And he said, let me see one of them. So I pulled one off the shelf, which was lectures I'd given at Princeton. And he sat there thumbing it. I mean, the author of Roots is thumbing my book and reading sections of it. It was amazing experience, just that. And he closes it and starts to hand it back to me. He says, Bill, you need to write a novel. And I go, Alex, what makes you say that? He said two things. One, you know how to write and you write really well. And two, you know how to tell a story. And that's all a novel is. Yep. And I go, what in the world would I write a novel about? And he said, well, what kind do you like? And I said, Tom Clancy, yeah. Robert Ludlum, yeah. all the Jason Bourne, mm-hmm. Jack Ryan stuff, international yeah. espionage. I like a little bit of Dan Brown. There's some I don't like, but a lot of it I do. He said, write a novel with, you know, those kind of things in it. And I said, I, you know, I don't know that much about some of that stuff. He says, well, you know about old manuscripts. And I said, yeah, that's true. He said, put some of that together. And so that's how it got started. Now, I was in another interview with somebody and they said, wow, you know, people always say to you, you ought to write a book. You know, somebody says, you ought to write a book about whatever. You ought to write a book. He says, and you kind of go, okay, whatever. He said, but when Alex Haley tells you, (laughs) you ought to he said, you need to pay attention to that. Listen. And so so I did. And I took off and and the story just started bubbling up inside Mm -hmm. me and I thought, I got to go do research because when you do a PhD, you have to become the world's authority on whatever it is you're writing about. And Absolutely. so I thought, I got to really know all this stuff yeah. if I'm going to write. Absolutely. So that's how I, love I got how you, started. I love how you described him as the consummate cheerleader. He also offered a piece of advice I thought was really great. Uh, find the good and praise it. I thought that was really that was his to mantra. Yeah. Find the good, find the praise good, it and praise it. He was one of the most positive, encouraging people I've ever known. And it's so sad to me that he's not still around yeah. for me to send him a copy or let him write the foreword or something. Of course. You know? uh, let him, let I did see what he inspired. I yeah. did dedicate the book to Alex because yeah. of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know what I really was appreciating um, as I dug into the book more and more is um, the many motivations of all the characters. You sometimes read these type of books or see films kind of about the same thing and you know, at the end end of the you know whole thing, the motivation is just money. But in this, it was so uh, varied the motivations of the people. You know, uh, Adam is protecting his loved one and looking for uh, redemption. There was you know a national pride was at stake. Elections, uh, you know, power. Uh, the Pope, you know, in peace. There's the importance of the Codex. There was just so many different motivations of why these characters were doing what they were doing. And I thought that was important and, and, and led to a lot of, uh, 
you know, richness of the book. And I was wondering if you could talk about how it was playing with all these different motives and, uh, and incentives that kind of incited all the action. It was really, it made, it made, it made the story, it propelled things in a major way. People really wanted things and they were different things that people wanted. Yeah, that's a great question, Michael, and a and an important feature of any kind of writing. Let, let me uh, back up a bit to tell you why I got into that the way I did. At one point, the novel, when I first finished it, was 740 pages. Mm. I don't know if you've seen the new, it's not that new, but the movie Genius, which is about Tom Thomas Wolfe. I know it. I and his publisher, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, Maxwell Perkins and Scribner's. And he brought in this 5,000 page thing. I mean, he was just like, whoa, <laughs> and, and had to learn how to tighten and yeah. cut. Because as I've said in lots of different settings, writing, good writing is not just writing, it's rewriting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's that's all writing is, it's rewriting. Yep. And it's editing and it's tightening and it's, it's making it better. So I brought that 740 page manuscript into a literary agent in Dallas, dropped it on his desk, and he said, you nearly broke my damn desk with that thing. Don't take 200 pages out of it, and I'll look at it. Just like that. I don't even want to even tell you what 200. Just go take 200 pages. Yep. So I had to learn how to tighten. And a friend said, learn how to write screenplays, because screenplays will make you tighten yeah. the story. Yep. You won't have all this carrying on about you know, okay, and no get get Adam Hunter to do this. And no, the Bedouin would simply get on the phone and say, it's done. That's all he would say. Yep. So I had to learn yep. how to tighten, okay? And I also learned, I, I took courses in screenwriting, a lot of courses. And I actually have a screenplay that won the Tell You Write Any Fifth Screenwriting Contest. That's a romantic comedy, totally different uh -huh. type of story. But what this taught me was, Every character in a story needs to have motivation. Absolutely. Otherwise, they're they're just plastic characters. They aren't real people. What is it? I think Vatican said, even if it's they need a glass of water or something, they need, you know, if they're yeah. thirsty or just yeah. something. They yeah. need a motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Every movie starts with a main character who wants something. Mm -hmm. And that's what drives the story. And then you throw lots of obstacles in that character's way. Yeah. But it's important to remember the B, C, D, E, other characters have mm -hmm. to have motivations yeah. too for the story to be interesting. Yeah. And so that, that fed me. It was the screenwriting, learning how to mm -hmm. write screenplays that helped me understand how to deepen my own characters. But there's another part of this and I didn't want this to be just another beach read, you know. Yeah. I wanted it to have literary depth, mm. right? I'm not trying to be the next William Faulkner or Faulkner mm. or Hemingway or James Joyce or whatever, but I think uh, a fast read, which is what this is, it's you know a lot of reviewers are saying it's a page turn, needs to have literary depth for it to be a really good book. Yeah. And so for me, Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, um, Adam Hunter is not just one guy. He, Adam in Hebrew is humankind. Adam represents a violent humanity out of control in search of peace. Rennie, the main female character whose name comes from Irene in Greek, means peace. Yep. And 
she's the only one who can complete his mythic story. That's more than just two characters in an unlikely romance. So, yeah. and, and all the characters have Anastasia Paleologos, yeah. the Greek woman. Yeah. After I, I modeled her after a wonderful Greek woman I met in Dallas who owns seafood restaurants and mm-hmm. who loves St. Catherine's Monastery, wanted the codex to go. Well, Anastasia in Greek means resurrection mm-hmm. and Paleologos means old word. So her name, Anastasia Paleologos, which I never say in the novel, means the resurrection of the old word, oh. which is what she wants to do. See? <laughs> So everybody's got some mm-hmm. want, and that's what drives the story is you you want characters that people will care about, right? Yeah. Yep. That's what you want. Otherwise, you why keep reading? Exactly. Not just from one shooting to another, yep. not just action scenes. You want you want real characters. And I will say, and sorry about such a long answer, but Honestly, I will say please, please. that I want I wanted this to be more nuanced in this way. So many of these international espionage stories are the Americans are the good guys and the Arabs are the bad guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I don't think that's the way the world really is. Humans are way too complicated for that. There's just there's good and bad and and, and almost all of us for real. That's it's either Augustine or one of the theologians who said there is evil in every good person and good in every evil one. No question. That's what's going on in this story adam is not a totally good guy yep. you know yep. there's some something about him that he's broken he's he's flawed and and that makes him more real in in my opinion and all the characters now you know the pope is i had so much fun writing the pope and what's fascinating about it is i wrote i didn't change a word about how i wrote the pope uh-huh. back uh-huh. in 30 years ago oh really but he is like Pope Francis today. He is, absolutely. That's what I kept Isn't thinking it? about. Uh, and, uh, you know, I thought about the time frame that you're writing it. But the Pope is super progressive. And I really, you know, was attracted to that. And then we had a Pope Francis who's kind of saying these things and talking about the environment and, and talking about peace and togetherness. And I'm like, this is your guy. In all the revisions, I never changed anything about the Pope. Mm-hmm. And the Pope John Paul II was the Pope when I wrote this. I did. I will say that I did model the Secretary of State, the Cardinal, uh-huh. after Rotzinger. I, oh, wow. I did model it after Rotzinger, and and because he was Secretary of State at the time I wrote this, and whatever, and he just died. You know that yeah, Pope yeah, just yeah. died. But but uh, yeah, I mean, I, the Pope is just is such an interesting character, yep. and what he does as the story progresses. We won't give anything away is just really kind of fascinating absolutely let's um kind of talk about you know his motivation i i, I mentioned his peace and there's just like this hopeful message of peace that kind of resonates and actually culminates in the book but uh you bring up the conflict between palestine and israel often and kind of in this very pragmatic and thoughtful way and i was curious what you kind of your book is or you're saying about um you know, this kind of standoff and the overall chance for peace there. There was there was a couple pages like, you know, deep in the 200s that kind of said some really poignant things about, you know, land and, and you know, change in perspective and the chance for peace there. And I was wondering if you could talk about that some. Well, one of the things I am very careful to do, I mean, I teach people how to preach and I coach CEOs and yeah. speaking and this and that, is I didn't want this to be a sermon. 
Mm -hmm. I didn't want this to be, it's not even really a religious book. It's a secular book, but it has a kind of hidden religious message about peace, global peace Mm -hmm. in it. And so I, I am staying away from making political comments about the Israeli Palestinian. You can tell I am. Mm -hmm. And there are good guys and bad guys on both sides of the Israeli Palestinian thing. You you know that because you've read it. I don't want to give away too much. Sure. But I did. I've done tons of research on that whole subject and fascinated. One of the shows I watch on Netflix. It's in its fourth season. I think now it's called Fauda. F A U D A. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely amazing! Yeah. How much depth and how they nuance the good guys and bad guys and that. It so makes, I try to do that in a real realistic way. It definitely makes the story more interesting and more real. Um, I was wondering, you know, it's such a tangled web we're dealing with, and it doesn't feel that way once you dig into it. And it's impressive, um, you know, so many people from different walks of life and all over the globe. And, uh, you know, it, I think it would be neat to hear any advice you have for writers to keeping it so tight and kind of, you know, it's just easily understood, even as we're bouncing from, you know, uh, D.C. all the way over to, you know, the, the other side of the globe and the Middle East, back to Tennessee. And it just once you to get Russia. to Russia and beyond and to obviously the Vatican. And it just feels it's 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 I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about how you balance all that? Well, I will say that I'm easily bored when I read. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm really easily bored. Yeah, yeah. And I can put a down, book down really fast. Uh-huh. Or easily bored by a speaker who uh, meanders in a swamp and doesn't keep on a through line in an interesting way. And one of the things that keeps me from being bored in a book like, you know, any of Daniel Silva's books are just brilliant as far as I'm concerned, uh, is that he does jump from place to place, but he keeps the through line of the story going. Yeah. You know, the through line of the story is Adam Mm -hmm. and Rennie and what's going to happen to them and the codex in this manuscript. And that's the through line. Mm -hmm. Everything else is just ancillary related to that in some way or another. And at first you think, wow, look at all these characters. Uh, One of the people in a book club the other night said, I had to start taking notes on who these characters are and whatever. You have the index in the back though. I thought, and he went to the back. (laughs) I'd already read a hundred pages, and I went to the back. Oh, the list of characters. I would would go to. I would. I would. When I was getting to know the characters, I would would use that index a lot. Yeah. And I didn't want to do it at the beginning because I didn't want to give away too much at the beginning. But yes, go to the end, look at Mm -hmm. the list of characters. It'll help you keep the story straight. But for me, this story was like this enormous quilt that I was. Yeah, creating. Yep. And it starts out with all the separate pieces and then you start weaving them together to the point that lots of people have come in they're like, you did bring it all together in the end. All the different yeah. threads all finally came together in the mm-hmm. end. That's very satisfying for a writer Definitely. is to be able to. Uh, but you, you have to outline if you're an outliner. I have to outline. I have to see. Uh, I'm a big believer in also kind of knowing where it's going, uh, how it's going to end. And then I write to that. Uh, It's a little bit theological. That's the way the Gospels were written. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. started with the uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Then they said, well, where did this guy guy do? And they told where where he spoke. And 
And then at the end, uh, Mark didn't think that uh, Mark thought the world was coming in, so they didn't care where he came from. And Matthew and Luke came along and they go, wait a minute, let's find out where he came. So the infancy narratives are added last. Yeah. yeah. So it's written backwards. backwards. Okay. So when you're a writer, I think it's important to have a basic idea of where you're going with yep. the story. Yep. And then you lead up to it. Yeah, I work with my daughter a lot on writing. We try a different lot, a lot of different trade of, you know, writing prompts and whatnot. And that's one I always go back to because I find out that, you know, her short stories she works on, those are always the best because you're working towards something. It doesn't feel like it's meandering or working or, you know, it just, it's a really, really good way uh, to write. I really love the, um, you know, you already said, you, you talked about it, trying to keep it tight. It's it, it it described as a page turner, which it is. But I love the terse chapters. Um, it moves the story and builds momentum nicely. Was that the idea of kind of these these little shorter chapters? It really it feels originally like originally the chapters were longer. Okay, and <laughs> it was two hundred pages removed. <laughs> what, yeah, what happens is I instead of just having longer chapters and with sec lots of sections, yeah. I just separated the sections out and made them chapters. Nice. Uh, I I have found the more I read, I don't know if it's Patterson or whichever ones, different writers have very short chapters. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm reading a book and like you know, I read a lot at night before we go to sleep, it helps you go to sleep and I will read and then I'll go. How long is this chapter? I want, <laughs> yeah. I want to go to sleep. Yeah. You know, uh, and I look conclusion? how many more pages I'm going to have to, or I'm going to put a bookmark in at this oh. place. Whatever. Yep. And so I don't want people to do that. However, what people have said with the way I wrote this is I have a hook at almost the end of every chapter. Yep. So it's yep. very hard for them to stop. That's the page turn to point. <laughs> they do Absolutely. Need to go on. You give them yeah, a point to stop, but also you're enticing them as well. Yeah, and they'll be waking up at two in the morning to kind of figure out, wait a minute, I got to see where that went, what's happening to it. Yeah. So it's a page. The other thing I added, and it was a suggestion of a fellow author uh, in Colorado, an editor, and he said, you need some titles for your chapters. Yeah, um, that was interesting. You got yeah. 77 chapters. It's boring. Go one, two, three, one, four, two, five, yeah. you know, put some titles. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, that was like coming up with sermon titles. It was just yeah. fun. You know, just fun. Yeah. You know, yeah, not don't say too much. Entice, invite. Yep. So you know that's that's what I did, and so I and then I had to come up with the sections. I had six sections, yeah. and I came up with the PRE at the beginning of each section. Mm -hmm. So I've got premise, you know, predicate, predicament. You know, it just goes on like that as the sections, and the sections sort of represent when Adam goes to a different part of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they in other words, he's moving to somewhere other else when you go to a new section yeah. it was fun i don't know it just <laughs> took it's it just took forever because <laughs> i did so much research and i kept editing and i kept sending it to people say what do you think why well, you know uh one i mentioned uh, a shout out to charles cornwell who was professor of english at davidson college who is the former husband of patricia cornwell uh -huh. and has been her editor through all of her books. Yeah. Uh, he was, was with my editor. All 12 revisions of this book, yep. wasn't he? He yeah. was with me through all 12. And he's the one who told me to, to uh, you know, take the explosion out at the beginning mm. and use it in flashbacks. So yeah. everything just starts now and takes off. And I was asking a fellow author and he said, 
try, I said, try to do this. And he said, Bill, if an editor for Patricia Cornwell told me <laughs> that I should do something, I think I would listen to his advice. Just, so, like, just and, like Alex and told me to write the book. Yeah, and, and I will say this 12th revision was the one where Charles said to me, you got it. You it's got masterful. It. Get it out there. It's ready. It's ready to go. That he said, I love the way you pulled it all together. It's been a really, so, really nice moment. I hate to ask this as... We have talked about how long this took, how many revisions there were, but I mean, you know, I was left for want at the end in more, in looking for more uh, uh, ventures with Adam. Is that something that's on your mind at all? I have written a really wild and crazy swashbuckling sequel. Uh -huh. and I don't know if I can ever actually write it. I mean, I think so. of the research it would take. Uh, but uh, I have thought about that. I've also thought about doing something very different. I lecture on the brain at medical schools and yeah. medical conferences and have been since 2000. Mm -hmm. And I'll be actually be doing lectures on that uh, here in Maryville, Tennessee at Maryville College uh, in the end of March. And um, I th I'm thinking about a book on neuroscience that mixes somewhat with theology in a very healthy way for oh. a better you and a better mm -hmm. world kind of thing you know and knowing your brain understanding your brain for a better you and a better world uh the, the neuroscience of good news whatever that's kind of what i have in mind next for writing awesome so. that comes to fruition i want to talk about that that sounds fascinating i want to give one big bravo that that I really thought was special about the story. I love the patience in the love story. There was something so real about it. There was something um, that just, it just made it all, I don't know, work in such a better way. Was that something that you spent a lot of time thinking about kind of how you brought these two characters together? Cause it was, it worked really well. I wanted to hold it back and hold it back because here, I mean, I'm not giving away too much to just say, we know that Adam, in this opening scene, which now is in flashbacks, has killed Rennie's fiance by accident, just as he killed his own wife and the Bedouin's girlfriend. And he's come to Tennessee to be close to her because he's feeling guilty and just wants to help. I don't know. But he never imagined she would fall in love with him. Yeah. Yep. And then end up in his adventure all over the Middle East and Rome and different places. And that's a tension that I wanted to create. Yeah. I, I didn't have to create it. It's just the motivations of the two characters. Mm -hmm. And that tension is just there all the way through. The reader is going to ask, what well, is she going to find out that and she's falling in love with the guy who killed her fiance. And when she finds out what's she going to do? She gonna react? This, yep. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, and if she finds out, are they ever going to, you know, what's she going to do? And would they ever get together and yada? So I just held that back as long as I could yep. and then let it un unfold frame by frame. You know, it, it, it hits like hard. Good... It's really, really unfolding, though. I really I really appreciated the the pacing of that. And and just it, it made it feel so much more real. And there was a bigger reward there. Um, the book's great. I love talking about it. Again, this insight is so cool, too. The, all the Easter eggs and the names and the places and all your backstory into it. You could tell there's so much of you and your research in there. It's so great. Uh, before we end up here, I want to ask you about your publishing site, because I think a lot of people who spend time on Across the Margin or uh, with this right. podcast would be interested yeah. to know about what you're up to at uh, 
Lacante Publishing. What's going on over there? Yeah, it, it's Lacante Publishing, and that's the name of the famous mountain in the Smokies. Yep, and it's really not a traditional publishing company. It's mm-hmm. to, like you're across the margin, is to inspire writers mm-hmm. and screenwriters and playwrights and artists. And I have mentors from all over who you're one of my mentors and yep. uh, they give advice and they tell about their experiences, ups and downs. They get real honest about it. And we encourage people to contact us and, you know, if they need some help or encouragement or conversations. I want to mention what, and I tell a little about this in one of, in my little essay on the publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to mention that uh, one of the big surprises to me in writing the novel Assassin's Manuscript is that the characters start talking to you as the author. They, you actually have conversations with them. Yeah. I know writers who say they go and have lunch with their characters and they sit and talk. Well, one of my characters, as I had finished the novel, said, Bill, don't you realize that so-and-so is my... And it just exploded for me. And I can tell uh, this, what it was once somebody's read the book or at a book club or yeah. whatever. But it it just brought the story together in a really cool way. And it was the character who told me I needed to make that change. That's so cool. Yeah, characters will say, characters will say, no, I wouldn't say it that way. This is how I'd say it. Yeah, or they would say, no, I wouldn't do it. This yep. is what I would do. Mm-hmm. That's when you really know the motivations. Anyway, Lacan Publishing, uh, you can, uh, it's one word, uh, L-E-C-O-N-T-E publishing.com. Yeah. Uh, Come check it out. Uh, yeah. it's, it's kind of fun. Uh, and read what some of the mentors have said about their own experiences, their mm-hmm. own failures, their own successes, what they've learned yeah. in their process it's as creative people. Such a good source for writers. And it also, you know, there's there's writing can be a team sport, as you kind of alluded to with Charles um, Corwell, the working with him and, you know, listen to your mentors. I've learned so much from editors throughout throughout my years and Hope to pass that knowledge down. That's kind of what's going on over there, which is really, really beautiful. But I love the book. It has this strong message of hope and peace um, that resonates through it, which really touched me. It kind of what could be, uh, you know, exists there, which I really loved. And, uh, you know, it made me want to travel and and especially visit the mountains of Tennessee. So I got to get down that way soon. But that's part of the fun of the book. It takes you on an adventure around the world. It's tons of fun. Tons of fun talking to you about it. I really appreciate you coming on the program, uh, William. Assassin's Manuscript. We're just saying the name one more time. Assassin's Manuscript. We'll have all the information in the show notes. So thank you again. uh, And hopefully we'll be talking about, uh, you know, some of your books moving forward once again uh, on on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Sue came along, loved me strong, that's what I thought, me and Sue, that I do.
This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.